Hello there. I'm sure you were expecting a brand new episode of The Carpenter Shop this week. Please forgive us. We have been negligent in our duties to the cult of Carpenter. In place of a regular scheduled discussion of They Live, we thought this would be a perfect opportunity to rerun our first official episode, in which we discussed Prince of Darkness with the Wayward Warrior, Hunter Cates. Please enjoy this special rebroadcast. If you do not hear from us again, please avenge deaths. Hey there. Welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. I'm Hunter Cates. And I'm Jacob Graves. Once a month, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Guys, what's on the docket today? Well, Jake and Chris kick things off with a throwback to The Thing. Now we're dissecting part two of John Carpenter's apocalypse trilogy, Prince of Darkness. Were we collectively possessed by the pleasance of Carpenter's satanic splatterfest? Or did Carpenter's mix of pseudoscience, sermonizing, and demon zombies leave us scratching our heads? And we've each got something you should definitely check out in Really Rad Recommendations. But first... John Carpenter spent a majority of the 80s crafting large-budget spectacles like The Thing, Starman, and Big Trouble in Little China, he returned to his elemental filmmaking roots in 1987 when he directed Prince of Darkness. Produced on a lean budget of just $3 million, and set almost entirely in a single location, at times, this film feels like a spiritual sequel to Assault on Precinct 13, with more supernatural sci-fi and horror elements thrown into the mix. Elements which include a theoretical physicist and his gang of graduate students, a secret and ancient order of monks who possess the ability to send messages through space and time, and a massive, malevolent magnum filled with glowing green goo. When a priest, played by Donald Pleasance, finds the vat of emerald sludge in the basement of a derelict church, the team of physicists is brought in to research it. They soon discover it contains physical properties beyond anything they can even explain, and it might also contain a devilish anti-god figure from another dimension who's hellbent on busting into our plane of existence to destroy, well, everything. Really, it's all just a setup for a pick-em-off, one-by-one fright fest. While the film was technically a box office success in 1987, grossing nearly five times its budget in domestic ticket sales, Prince of Darkness seems to have been excommunicated to little more than cult status today. So guys, I'm curious. Prince of Darkness is certainly not the most obvious film choice to kick off a podcast dedicated to the work of John Carpenter, but this series is as much about exploration of the director's work as it is about adoration of it. 
So was Carpenter's second installment in the thematic series known as the Apocalypse Trilogy a good starting point for the show? And furthermore, does it deserve to be reassessed and elevated from cult canon to certified Carpenter classic? Well, I'll start off by saying, Chris, um, you, you referred to it as a box office success in 1987. Uh, I, I don't know about that because it was the 74th film of the year that year, right behind Ishtar. Here's the thing is it, it's success relative to the amount spent because Ishtar lost money, whereas right. this it, movie made money. It, but even though this made money, it doesn't mean that it entered the public consciousness of like classic Carpenter work. So I definitely think it needs to be reassessed, especially from how much I just flat out liked this movie. Okay, so you you think it should be it should be elevated to Carpenter Classic? Is that what you're saying? I'm not going to say that quite yet. I, okay. I if you haven't seen Halloween and you don't know what a Carpenter Classic <laughs> is, <laughs> fair <laughs> point. But I I I love what I have seen, and I loved how as soon as I started watching this, I was like, this is what horror is to me. Yeah. Um, this is the it, it's it. I was watching it with one of my friends, and immediately he said, this even sounds like an 80s horror movie. I said, that's because John Carpenter wrote the score, and that's what you think of when you think horror movie. I'll, I'll be honest. I was a little disappointed by the score of this particular film. Like, it felt there – wasn't, there wasn't really a catch for me. It felt like uh, there's, you know, there's good – there's solid little synthy stuff all through, but there's nothing that caught my ear as, like, memorable. Far and away – yeah, far and away is most memorable, catchy – scores are escape from new york and sorry jake halloween and this didn't really have that by the way um should we refer to this just because prince of darkness is a bit cumbersome should we refer to this as pod on the podcast we should not <laughs> Continuing I, I, on. May, I may have to refer to this as pod <laughs> guys i'm going to play pun intended devil's advocate of here. course you are uh i didn't really care for this all that much really I, and here well and here's the thing is jake i feel like you might be no, and I'm sorry, I feel like you might be a little less well-versed in the Carpenter-verse, so therefore the the synthy score and the kind of overblown gore and things like that might be new to you. I'm a little bit more experienced in that, so to that I didn't really feel like it added a whole much, whole lot more beyond what I've seen in other Carpenter pictures. But what I, what I liked about it, I liked the ideas that went into this script, and it wasn't and, just a, a, a house that was haunted for no reason— it had a a nice story going with uh, the Brotherhood of Sleep and and the story behind the Green Goo. Well, okay, to that I'm going to say I'll throw this out there. To me, it kind of felt like an interesting idea, not a great idea, but an interesting idea that was kind of clumsily thrown into a horror movie to justify what was basically just a zombie attack scene at the end. Oh, okay. You're you're just playing. You're not playing devil's advocate. You're just playing Roger Ebert. At I'm, this point. I'm playing Hunter's advocate. <laughs> um, <laughs> is, no. is is he is he basically just wanted to make a zombie movie at the end? He had an interesting idea, so he thought, well, in order to justify the zombie movie, I'm going to have my interesting idea be all of Donald Pleasant's exposition dialogue. He'll explain it all, and then we'll just get to the movie I want to make. We don't we don't get a ton of exposition early on, though. And I actually I appreciate that. No, I I don't think so. I appreciate that about like I mean we for some reason like the credits are really long. We've got like six minutes of credits. Really, really long. But but I do appreciate what he's doing there is he's using the credit montage as a way to really quickly push information through. Um, and you kind of, without knowing exactly who these people are and what you're looking at, you kind of start to get to know them and you get to understand the students and uh, the, the the teacher and Donald Pleasance and all of this. And, and then it 
kicks into gear. You're you're smiling. I, I'm at me. You really sorry, disagree. guys. I'm sorry, guys. But there is literally a scene where they sit around a table and just explain. Well, according to these ancient manuscripts, Jesus was an alien, and Satan was yeah, but the anti God's kid, and the anti God is coming back via. I mean, right? But that's like an hour into the movie. But that, that's but what I'm still, saying. But it's is, still pure exposition. Though. No, I I don't disagree there. But what I'm saying is, I appreciate that it it goes long enough to not give us any exposition. And I wish what I what I was getting is I wish we actually leaned on that a little more and just say, hey, we're you have all the information that you really need to understand this story, because at its core, you're right. It is it is a take on a zombie movie, which I actually appreciate that he's kind of reinventing instead of it being just like zombies after brains. Well, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But was, I feel like it was still kind of clumsily put together. Jacob, you liked the story or liked the kind of the backstory. I, I did. I thought it added more because a lot of times when someone's just in a haunted house, I'm like, oh, why don't, why don't you just leave? Like, this isn't a world ending situation, but it, it at least raised the stakes and set up a reason why all this stuff was happening. And there's a ticking clock. OK, here's the thing, though, and this is the biggest insult you can make. And I don't mean it to be the biggest insult, but it is the biggest insult you can make to throw at a film. But it's kind of film schooly. You know what I mean? Like, this feels oh. like something I would have written at 21 of, okay, I really want to make a zombie movie, and I have this kind of interesting idea, because I w- just came out of my religion class, and I'm really impressed with myself, so I'm going to throw these two ideas together. And, and admittedly, Carpenter said he'd been reading a lot about, you know, theoretical physics, which I don't think he's, you know, well-versed in it, but he was interested in it. And it does it does have a lot of that kind of mumbo-jumbo um, to it. Um it it worked for me mostly. I don't I'm I think I'm right in the middle of you two though. I was not enamored with it. I I think it's exactly the type of film that I would expect for a three million dollar um quick and dirty, cheap independent film from uh from a guy who had been at that point making, you know, twenty five million dollar movies year after year after year. And you said quick and dirty and uh cheap independent film. I kind of feel like this idea the base idea of this movie is that Satan and evil itself can be is a physical manifestation that can be used via physics to monitor. But it's not Satan. Well, it, but, but Satan himself, but Satan is actually the son of a much greater evil, which is the anti-God. And then Jesus was an alien who came back in time to or maybe came back in time to tell us about this. Well, geez, yeah, Hunter, came, when you came, say it like that, it sounds dumb. I'm sorry but um so that's the story in a nutshell or the backstory in a nutshell which is that's kind of interesting but in a three million dollar basically independent horror movie it just doesn't job I feel like if this had more money and more time to to get that backstory and tell it a little bit more fluidly I would have liked it more because like I Jake I agree with you I like the underlying idea but the execution was just sloppy to me I, I one of the things I would fault it for I liked Victor Wong, uh, Professor uh, Barack. Barack. Yeah, yeah. I liked his character way more than I liked the the Brian Marsh mustachio. Oh, you mean you mean man. mustache? Because <laughs> in all of my notes, I was just calling him mustache. We we were calling him Jason Sudeikis. That's what we we had called him because he looked what? a li- little bit no. like when he grows in the mustache. No, you're wrong. Uh, we 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 all have our opinions. But but Jake, you actually bring up a perfect sort of segue into. The thing that I think is the weakest here, and that is not the not the plot. Like I'm cool with that. I'm fine with how this gets to where it is and and what it eventually becomes, Hunter. But I do think this cast is sort of while it's nice that it's like actually like for a film made in 1987, it's hella diverse 
and um, has, you know, ticks off all sorts of boxes and, and, and that's great. But I don't feel like there's really a central character to this. It's not, I mean, you could probably compare this to something like the thing and, you know, McCready is our central character. And then you have this ensemble of a lot of guys. Well, mustache guy is kind of our central character, but he's not. Do you guys suspect that was just because they started making that movie and John Cummer's like, wow, this guy's really not charismatic. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say because it feels it feels like a team sort of movie, except they're they're not there's no great camaraderie. So the team thing doesn't really work. Then that's that's part of what works so well in the thing is there. You feel like these guys have been stranded alone in Antarctica for a while together. And let's not say mustache lacked charisma. He he got that lady in bed just by asking for coffee. <laughs> this actually this actually brings up a question that I have, <laughs> which is um, later on after after that, I think um, we get this clip. Alans. I think he really just took off. I mean, like he was actually believing this whole business. Why is everybody looking at me that way? Because you're being assholeish. What's well, very assholeish of you to say so? Look, Mullins is probably off asleep someplace, or he's buffing the radiologist. I hope he's getting laid. I hope they're both on the way to a nice Chinese restaurant. So, guys, answer me this: Have I been blissfully unaware that? Going to a Chinese restaurant is a euphemism for something. Actually, I think it's a reference to Big Trouble in Little China is what that was about. It, that was his little nod to the audience. You think so? Yeah. Okay. Fair so enough. I mean, because I, I, I'm i with you. I'd love for go to a Chinese restaurant to be a euphemism can, for sex, but can, I don't think that's Can we going turn on it in. into one? I think so. I mean, okay. our, our our show has such an incredible reach. Right. That I bet within a week, that's what's going to happen. Great. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Um. So apparently, I think the quote screenwriter's name was quartermass but quartermass was a pseudonym for john carpenter right which is a reference to an old uh sci-fi series that right. he loved from the 50s so surely you guys would at least agree with me that the dialogue was lackluster in this. dialogue was bad it was real bad yeah. um i i don't like i'm not going to disagree with you on that and that's that's where like it feels it definitely feels rough around the edges but um it like in a way that's kind of charming. Like this is a film that I definitely still feel like if you're interested in John Carpenter, definitely see, definitely seek out. It's, it's not like a, it wasn't a slog to get through and it has a lot of great moments, but it's sort of like it, it has some, some parts that are, that are goofy and that are uneven and you got to go along with that. But at the same time, you've got, you've got some, I mean, I, I think it at its heart, it really cares about uh, this pick them off one by one uh, sort of, uh, zombie thing that it that it rolls into in the last half, starting with starting with Alice Cooper putting a bicycle <laughs> a bicycle through a man, which apparently was a reference to something he did in his concert. It was it was his stage yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. He he would put a microphone stand through a man, and so John Carpenter was like, "That's perfect. Can you do that with a bicycle?" John Cooper was like, yeah. was like "Alice Cooper, you need to kill a guy." It's like, "Well, I got this bicycle trick that I do," <laughs> and he said, "We're not going to take it." All right. <laughs> oh, oh wow. Uh, but you know, I think I think at the what this because it's silly. Yeah, it's totally silly. I mean, he's he's made other silly films that I would say we we love. Like they live is a silly silly movie. But okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna take my, I'm gonna take off my headphones and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. You don't, you don't think they live is a silly movie? I love they live, yeah. but it's a silly movie. I, I like this, haven't though. seen they live. Why are you here? What is wrong with you? I'm here to watch John Carpenter. <laughs> what is wrong with you? All right. Here's my thing about Prince of Darkness. Here's my thing about Pod is that it feels like 
John Carpenter's in film school, little Johnny Carpenter's in film school, and he makes this movie, and you're like, wow, this kid's really going places. Let's give him a real budget to make a real movie. It doesn't feel like a film that's come from a guy who's done Halloween, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, like a legit director. It feels like his film school thesis. That's that's a solid point. Like, had this come before Halloween, like, I would I would even say, had this come after Assault on Precinct 13, but uh, before Halloween, it would it, – I would – judge it with less harshness. And You're right. let's say we were watching all of these in order and we had just watched those other ones, I would definitely be harsher on it. But we're starting out and this is the first Carpenter movie I've seen since we reviewed the thing last year and I'm just like, oh man, I love Carpenter. I love So, so apparently I, we just pitched Jake a softball. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this exactly. is great. Okay, I'll throw this out here. Carpenter is very, very good at creating a universe creating a vibe mm-hmm. his scores play a huge part of that yeah. his synth scores even if they're not particularly memorable they create the universe and he did that here that's what i took away from this especially but i'm not sure he's the best in-camera director do you all agree with me i would agree with you on this film i would disagree on um and what exactly do you mean by in-camera i like- mean truly using the camera to convey suspense or convey the emotion of a scene and then not just the scene but over the course of a film it kind of feels like he's not just pointing and shooting but it's not it, it, the camera isn't helping him he's so, so you just you mean the camera through like shot selection and actually framing the shot not directing the actors i mean shooting edit. well yeah well okay, but actually the performances are not particularly good either but performances are are Kind of rough. Yeah, but as far as where he puts the camera, how he moves the camera, how he edits the scenes together, Mezen's scene, all of the above. Yeah, I, I disagree with you. I right. really disagree with you. Um, I mean, Halloween is a shiny example of that. Like, so much of Halloween lives and dies on the – sorry, Jake. I know you haven't well, seen this. Well, pod, but, I'm, but pod, though. I So, but you're – okay, so you're saying – you're not saying John Carpenter on No, I mean in whole. pod, yeah. Oh, um, yeah, I think it, I think it has a handful of bravura shots, like. Like the shot of the big red hand coming through the mirror, um, like the like the shots, like any of the shots involving the mirror, I thought were very well realized and very beautiful. And the you know that that shiny, I think they actually used mercury for the reflecting um, element. That's um, cool, but I mean, we had already seen that in Ridley Scott's Legend. You know what I mean? Had I- we? We've seen at least the hand. I've, I've never seen Legend. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to see Legend. <laughs> okay, we have another Roar Crunch. No, we don't. <laughs> but there's a lot of camera in in a low corner t- doing a, a mild pan. Again, just film schooly. Like a guy, a guy who's going to be really talented and going to do great things, but he's not there yet. So, so, so let's let's break it down for like one scene in particular on how he how the direction was handled. How did you think he did when Walter was locked in the closet thing with the little um, window looking out onto the the three women? One of them uh, had just had all the green goo go into her stomach. That's that's actually the other scene that I was thinking of. Off the as a bravura. 
Um, I, well, it's not quite, it's, it's not quite, I won't, I won't say it's on the level of the mirror stuff. The mirror stuff is, mm-hmm. is exceptional, but it's good suspense and it's good. Like, I think he also, he has the element of, you know, they're coming after him and he only has moments to get out. And there's that, uh, that sense of urgency. Well, and actually, okay, I'll, I'll grant you guys that because again, I feel like what, where his heart was, John Carpenter's heart was, was in the zombie stuff at the end. So I feel like. He again. He had the good idea, but he really. But and so he had the good idea, made the good idea, but that it wasn't really executed well. And then he got to what he really wanted to do, which was zombies in a tight there's, spot. There's a but, dude who won't stop saying "caca," and then he turns into Beatles. What more do you want from this movie? I, yeah, <laughs> we keep saying the Z word, the zombie thing. I thought it was more like a body snatcher type thing, along the lines of the thing. That's uh, my go-to. That's just my go-to. Just zombies Satan. as any kind of brainless looks like. Yeah, humans. Satan zombies. Yeah, <laughs> Satan zombies. Satan zombies. But what? but when it, well, but once it turned into Satan zombies, it was much better made, and that tells me that yeah. that's where he was more oh, at I, home. I totally I, agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not I'm not arguing that at all. Um, I I also think the the actual like orb of green goo is exceptionally shot and exceptionally made. Um, Satan soup. The Satan soup. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, it just, it looks menacing and it's, it's sort of brilliantly realized as something that's, uh, you know, an entity that is representative of so much more. Um, so there's, there's little things like that. I, I'm not saying that this is a John Carpenter masterpiece, uh, but there's a whole lot to love because I think in the hands of someone else, it would have been treated as, or if this script ends up on just the desk of whoever Brett Ratner was in 1980, then you have um, chopping mall. It's, then, then you have chopping mall. You have you have, chopping yeah. Mall. Like this, this movie could have been way worse. I agree with you. The dialogue itself is pretty is pretty stiff. The acting is not like, especially if you compare this to coming out, I think big trouble, in little China was the last thing he had made nowhere near as good as big trouble in little China. I'm not arguing that, but I think it's still an entertaining film. Well, and to that point, I think that he just wasn't having as much fun with the materials he thought he was. And he started having fun during Satan zombies. See, I, I, I took it a different way. I thought like he had a lot of want to in the movie. He just wanted to, get to the point where it was the horror movie he wanted to be directing. And maybe along the way, he realized that $5 million doesn't buy you actors. $3 million. $3 million. It definitely doesn't buy you actors. Yeah, but you would you would think that with everything under his belt that he has, he would be able to wrangle them a little better than, than he, he did. But maybe it's also a matter of he's not just dealing with like two or three main characters. He's dealing with a big ensemble. And, and Big Trouble had just flopped, right? Big Trouble didn't do well in theaters. Right, it did poorly. So so maybe it burned all his his, uh, his Hollywood cred as far as getting somebody to come work on a John Carpenter movie. The idea, this and this kind of bugs me in general, and then it bugged me here, is even if you can admire the ticking time bomb and the, the close quarters setting, I'm always bothered by movies that are have a, an apocalyptic end of the world idea, but then they're so small and so hmm. the, like the universe, like the, the basic story of this is game changing. It's universe changing. And yet you and then yet this movie is all takes place in a basement. You know I, what I mean? I, I get what you're saying, but I disagree with you like, because I think. A, like, I, I think going small is sometimes, not always, but sometimes the perfect way to explore something like that. And it's, uh, it's acceptable here, I'll say. But I think the, uh, the way this movie ends and the way it actually gives you a false a happy ending and then gets really, 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 uh, very pessimistic 
and and very like the entire world is going in. And then that final moment where you see the transmission, finally, this transmission that we've been seeing the whole time, which is another like beautifully realized the way that they mm-hmm. they shot that uh the television screen and and you get just little pieces you're you're putting more and more of the dream together i, I can see you you really disagree with me hold on hold on let me okay. let me finish and then we get to finally revealing that oh no the the figure the shadowy figure we've been seeing the entire time it's actually ginger who i don't remember her name she's the the, the redhead yeah. um and she's coming out because she had gone over to the other realm and she's going to be our destruction here's the deal then it suddenly gets huge Lady, that's that's what makes it bigger ladies and gentlemen there was a film by another young filmmaker in film school in fact that did this so much better this idea of a cla- of a an apocalypse scenario in a claustrophobic setting it was called uh UFO and it was by a guy named Hunter Cates <laughs> Man, I almost said, is this going to be you, Hunter? <laughs> and I feel like this guy did it better. I'm just saying. Oh. What, what did UFO stand for? I was that, and here's the thing is I was going to say it, but I can't remember. Yeah, I think that's like, like an uneventful fishing or an, uh, unusual, outing, fish. an unusual fishing outing yeah. or something like that <laughs> was what it was actually called. But yeah, if I can find that and put it on YouTube... I re- that'll be one of my recommendations. I might, I might have that on an old hard drive. I have from, it somewhere from, from film. Festivals. I literally thought about that earlier today and how I liked that. I actually enjoyed that, Connor. <laughs> okay, yeah. If you wanna, if you wanna send me that file, that okay. will make my day because I only have DVDs. But if that's I, a side well, note. It's, it's a DVD. It's a file for making DVD, but I can, I can get it to you. And I will. Do you mind if I put it up on uh, the Warships Midnight Not at all. Uh, YouTube channel? Not at okay. all. I insist. And then people can compare this to Pod. They compare UFO to POD. <laughs> Stop trying to make Pod a thing. So I had one more thing I wanted to bring up. So we see that essentially the true origin of all religion on Earth or Christianity or whatever in this little church thing, and pretty much everybody dies. But Mustache Dude just gets to leave and live his life. So did he go out and like? tell people oh by the way satan's real and was coming through a mirror no i think it's the brotherhood of sleep i mean maybe maybe he becomes part of the brotherhood of sleep but it's very clear that while we never see them they are this group that has been for thousands of years kind of keeping the secret and they finally developed the late 90s technology um to transmit a video to the brain so so you think they are the ones who eventually transmit the video the brotherhood of sleep yeah, I, I think so. I mean, maybe he gets in touch with them. Who knows? Um, but it seemed like the only one who knew anything about it was the aptly named uh, priest, which is, by the way, what he was credited as. But his name was Loomis, which is a reference to a movie you've never seen. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> Could be 20 John Carpenter movies. Um, all right. So one of my favorite games to play is Remake That. John Carpenter's films have, for basically the past 15 to 20 years have kind of been on a remake spree. People have been remaking them. So let's remake Prince of Darkness. How do you, how do you all want to go about it? Let's, let's start with who do you want to make it? It would have to be kind of like a music video director or something like that. Cause that's what the rest of the John Carpenter films have been. Ooh, interesting. Okay. Actually, if you say that, I'm going to go a different direction though. And I'm going to go a very well-established music director. I think Mark Romanek would be very interesting with this material. I think he would bring as much as you think there's, it's sort of lacking in any visual flourish. He would bring that element to it. He's very good with kind of tone and style and place. 
And um, I mean, I, I'm not sure it's the type of thing he would be interested in, but I think he could do a lot with a story that is so small but nimble. I, I, I thought you were going to go uh, with uh, Michel Gondry as someone who's handled some uh, dreamscape type things before in Eternal Sunshine and Science of Sleep. Maybe he would be the one to try to to handle the, the Brotherhood of Sleep more, it, further explore the dream aspect of it while also trying horror, which I don't think he's ever done. I I love Michel Gondry, but I'm not sure I want to see him attempt Satan zombies. (laughs) What I would like to see, honestly, is Charlie Kaufman try and do it and just do an adaptation thing where he's like, I don't know what the fuck's going on here. So I'm going to do an adaptation. And actually, John Carpenter can be a part of it is it's uh, him working with. Yeah. John Carpenter trying to figure out how to how to make this movie. I think you're the winner. That could be the best scenario because then you don't you don't ruin I mean I I know it's not it's an imperfect film but you don't ruin what is there what does work with Prince of Darkness and you inevitably create something very different. Um yeah, I like that idea. I like that idea a lot. So, so you want a John Carpenter movie where there's a John Carpenter movie inside the movie. Hmm. That would be my best case scenario. Maybe, maybe we'll hmm. get to that next month. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. That would be my that would be my best case scenario. But absent that, I mean, yeah, just, I don't know, throw some C-grade actors in there and just redo it and make it a little longer. <laughs> okay, C-grade actors. Who who do you cast in your version? See, I wouldn't even know their names. Like Stephen Amell, the Green Arrow guy? I don't know. Just like some people that have, they're on TV and you would like recognize them. You'd be like, oh yeah, that guy. Like Andrew Lincoln from Walking well, Dead or something. Okay, like, question. Where does this movie play? Is this like a sci-fi original that you're making now? <laughs> yeah. No, it would be it would be they release it in August. Like August or September, whenever all the September, crappy, yeah. Yeah, whenever all the crap. September or February. Rob Zombie. Rob no. Zombie directed Halloween, the remake of Halloween. How do you go from the best idea to the worst idea? <laughs> well, no, if we're doing a direct one-to-one remake, if we're doing the if we're doing the Charlie Kaufman thing, that'd be awesome. Yeah. But otherwise, one-to-one Rob Zombie. I don't I don't know if Rob Zombie is. Is this guy, gonna be your though. answer for every every time we play this game? It's just, just give it to Rob Zombie. Yeah, no matter what, even if it's not John Carpenter. <laughs> what about you, Jake? Who would you cast in your Michelle Gondry version? I don't. I don't even know. It's hard watching a movie when you don't associate with any character, and then trying to cast a character to go with those. Yeah. Like I, I, I without looking at IMDb, I couldn't have named a single character in this movie. Yeah. No. That was the, that was a big a big big problem because there wasn't really a main character to, to anchor it, and then there were a lot of them, and it was just physical features that I ended up uh, kind of using to remember who they were in my notes. Then, um, then you know what? Just cast franchise Viagra. Have the Rock in it. I don't know who he's who he plays, but yeah, have the Rock, Father Rock. Jake, I will applaud you for not choosing either Jordan Peele or Donald Glover for either of these picks. So you're you're growing. You're growing a little bit. I did in my head. I just didn't get a chance to chime in. <laughs> Does Dan Harmon make this movie? Uh, maybe. What would Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland do with this? That would be interesting. They would spend a lot more time inside that mirror. They would spend they would spend all of the time inside that mirror. Like we would be in that mirror in the first like fifteen minutes. Okay, here's my director, James Wan, who I believe he's done a lot of the Fast and Furious, yeah. and he also did the Conjuring. That's right. that's the correct answer. Conjuring was Conjuring was great. The last honestly scary movie uh, to be made. Yeah, I so I would say he's the correct answer. 
And if, if, if unless you're going batshit and like that's, doing Michelle Gondry or Charlie Kaufman, yeah, if, but you're, if you're if you're replacing Rob Zombie, that's a much better answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you're trying to be if you're trying to do this legitimately, do it with James Wan. Hunter, I actually have another game to play for you. Um, you love you love games, so this this should be a gift. And this is something I want to do with every episode. Uh, it's what I am calling right now the death match. Although I'm open to other ideas if you have them, and it's basically I want to put. Um, each with each Carpenter movie we we review, I want to put the main character up against uh, our reigning champion. So we've only seen one. Uh, obviously, McCready is going to be the guy coming out of the thing, um, partially because he's one of the only guys left living at, at the end of the thing. Um, so I don't even I get do we do we put him up against Mustache or Donald Pleasance? Or Donald Pleasance is going to repeat this because he was in, of course, Halloween. So we assuming we assuming we say yes, I mean we use him, assuming we use him. So actually, you raise a good point. I actually mustache guy. We don't even know his name. We don't know Brian something. Brian's. I mean, like yeah, of course it's Brian. So as much as. Look, I, I don't know, Jake. You decide. Look, they're not. Yeah, they're, you love this movie. I didn't say loved. I said I really enjoyed this movie. I, look, none of them are beating McCready. We know that. So let's just go with Victor Wong's character, Professor Barack, because at least I enjoyed him when he was on screen. He, he, okay. he, he delivered lines that I liked. Okay, so McCready versus Professor Wong. <laughs> yes. That, and also, yes. and also, as opposed to Deathmatch, how about we call this Carpenter Clash? Okay. Fine. Okay. If so, you... in the first ever Carpenter Clash, McCready versus Professor Wong. Yeah, it's McCready. It's de- <laughs> like it was. It was always going to be McCready. Look, this game is going to be more interesting as time goes on. Right now, it's just this is low level enemies. Right now, it's going to be interesting because we're going to have uh, Kurt Russell coming up against Kurt Russell probably There's, time and time and time again. There, I don't know that there will be a point in this podcast where Kurt Russell doesn't hold this award. I, that's that's a solid like, I mean, we'll we'll see what happens. There are definitely things that I, I'm totally unaware of. So uh, maybe we'll get some some sort of surprises. But yeah, it's he's definitely the front runner. If if this was a bracket, he would be the, the number one seed and a little glimpse in the future. Uh, listeners, the way we have the schedule laid out right now, we're going to basically go through Carpenter's canon, and then we're going to touch on a couple of the TV movies. We're going to hit uh, Elvis, so it would actually be great if Elvis won. If, if Elvis ends up ends up uh, taking it, and then we're going to end on body bags. Uh, one because I think it'll be a fun conclusion, and two because of course the greatest uh protagonist in the Carpenter Clash showdown needs to go up against John Carpenter himself. Okay, gentlemen, we've seen this film, we reviewed this film. Now, for our cult of Carpenter listeners, we it's time to decide how we rate this among the Carpenter canon. So, is it a Carpenter classic, or is it a deep dive, which is exclusively for people who just want to see all of John Carpenter's films? Or is it at the low end and is just for Johnny's mommy, which means it's so bad, only Mrs. Carpenter would enjoy it. So of the three, Jacob Graves, where do you stand? So I I, I don't know what you guys are going to end up saying because I like this the most and I still think you got to I think you got to file it under deep dive. Yeah, I agree. It's a it's a deep dive. It it has warts, but it's uh it's still totally watchable and totally enjoyable, even if, you know, there's there's a lot of rough edges. 
this is going to be kind of difficult because I like John Carpenter, so I don't really, for me, I'm not really sure I'm ever going to know the difference between deep dive and just for Johnny's mommy. You know what I mean? Because like, even if I hate something, it's still a deep dive. Ha- have you seen Ghost of Mars? I haven't yet. No, so no the, I don't think any of us has. No. So there's, the, so there's that. But um, so, yeah, if you're a John Carpenter guy, definitely a deep dive. But as far as just the film itself, I'd say just for Johnny's mommy. Uh and this Ooh. may be the this may be I hope this is the only time I say that. I, I I think it is better than that. It is way too fun of a movie not to just pop popcorn and get some friends on the couch and watch. I it feel is, like I feel like she saw this and she and she patted him on the shoulder and said, Good job, Johnny. The next one will be better. Ooh. Now what was the deal with the ooze? Exactly. Spoilers are done. Spoilers are So, Chris, having seen Prince of Darkness, are you going to go something which is a little on the darker side, or are you going to kind of go against the grain, pun intended, and do a lighter beer, since this is such an evil film? Well, I couldn't find a green beer. Um, also right now I am constrained to, uh, I am doing what we are calling the summer of sours on war starts at midnight, which is, uh, throughout the summer, I'm just recommending sour beers just as a, a little, you know, challenge to, to narrow things. So there's not really a dark sour beer per se. Like it's not, you know, you're not, you're not going to get anything that looks like a porter or a stout. See, now I'm curious what you would have chosen had you not been confined to Summer of Sours. What I probably would have chosen is a barrel aged IPA from founders called Doom. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. So there That's you go. your other option if you don't like sours. <laughs> uh, which I'll, I'll just say, if you like IPAs, but don't like a boozy hit to it, probably not a beer for you. But if you, if you really like something that's kind of higher on the ABV and really has a has a bite at the back, really good beer. But that's not what I'm recommending. That's not what I'm going to pair with Prince of Darkness. I am going with Mariposa Sour Ale by Almanac Beer Company in San Francisco, California. Now, they describe this as a dry hopped sour blonde ale aged in wine barrels with Mariposa plums. And it's coming in at a 6.8 ABV, no IBU listed. And, you know, that 6.8, I've recommended a few gozas in the past and those are going to come up on this summer of sour because they're it's just a very popular um style those are you know generally coming in at like a three or four around there so this is this has a little more kick to it than some of the beers that i will be recommending this summer um it pours a really interesting like cloudy almost tangerine color and you know it's certainly sour but there's uh less of a pucker effect than um, with some of the other beers that I have already recommended and I'm sure will recommend in the future. Uh, it's not as evident here as it is with, say, uh, a really nice Goza. Um, as far as sort of the body of it, it it's a fairly light drink. Uh, the wine barrel aging actually does add a nice subtle dryness, though, that I really like. Um, and I think this is a beer that uh, that pairs well with uh, with food as well. It sort of sort of has a nice balance there because it's not super um, super overpowering in the sour. It's just a a nice um, edge tart to it. Uh, and you know, like Prince of Darkness, it is not necessarily an all timer, but definitely something I would not be ashamed to enjoy again. That is Mariposa Sour Ale from Almanac Beer Company. So pack it on your cooler as you get on the boat and go take a trip on the Lake of Fire. <laughs> 
Indeed. <laughs> Prince of Darkness is currently streaming on Stars. It's also available to rent from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. Like Hollywood Video? The Carpenter Shop brought to you by Hollywood Video. Or if you're still a fan of physical media, you can pick up the Scream Factory Collector's Edition Blu-ray. If you've seen Prince of Darkness, hit up our assistant, Henry Swanson, at PorkchopExpress at CarpenterCast.com, and he'll relay the message to us. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Hang in there, kid. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations you won't want to miss. Alright folks, we have reached the end of the episode, which means it is time for Really Rad Recommendations, something that we do on the Mothership Podcast, War Sorts of Midnight, something that we are going to do here on The Carpenter Shop. Uh, Hunter, what do you have to recommend this week? Well, ladies and gentlemen, the last time that I was on War Starts at Midnight, which was episode 69, we did a civil war bout between alien and aliens. And inspired by that, I decided to see two films, which I don't think I've seen in at least 15 years, Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. Each one of these films exists in infamy because a lot of people think that they're just exceptionally bad. I would actually say they're a solidly okay, maybe even good horror movies. They just had the misfortune of following two of the greatest horror movies of all time. So I would recommend that you revisit or perhaps see for the first time Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. You can stream those on Cinemax, and they're also available on Vudu, iTunes, or Google Play. Now, Chris, I actually have a, another recommendation because I wanted to oh, do— Oh, goody. Yeah, th- and this is exciting. This, guys, this is—oh, my God, this is so exciting. Um, it's rare that I recommend something sight unseen, but I know that I'm going to enjoy this. I decided to do a Google search on Satan movies because I wanted to tie it into uh, P.O.D., and Quit trying to make the one, thing. one of the first ones that popped up is a film which, as far as I can tell, is not available to stream, not really available on DVD, and then is only available on a used VHS. So I'm going to probably have to bite the bullet and just order it off of Amazon. No, there was a DVD, but it's Region 2. Excuse me. There's a Region 2 DVD. So for our British listeners, you're doing just fine. Um, it is a film from 1990 called Mr. Frost and... All I know about it is all I need to say about it, which is that <laughs> Jeff Goldblum plays Satan. So Yeah, I'm it, sold. Yeah, sold. So I'm as soon as the show's over, I'm going to go to Amazon and buy this on tape and pull out my VHS player because I, I I can't really put into words how excited I am about Mr. Frost. As long as Jeff Goldblum gets to be more Jeff Goldblumy than he was in uh Independence Day Resurgence, I'm I'm sold. You know, one can only hope. And when was this made? Nineteen ninety. Perfect. Yeah. Jake, what about you? What do you have to recommend? Okay, so I, I 
didn't know what to recommend, so I wanted to find a movie that was linked together via some IMDb keyword. That's kind of my cheat codes for finding something to recommend. So this film is linked by the keyword uh, score composed by director. So when you click on that, it's mostly a list of John Carpenter, Clint Eastwood, and John S. Rad movies. But I picked, <laughs> but I picked another apocalyptic zombie flick by the Rebel Without a Crew, Robert Rodriguez, hmm. starring Rose McGowan, Freddie Rodriguez, and Josh Brolin. Planet Terror was released as part of 2007's Grindhouse, alongside Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, which may come up as a recommendation on a future John Carpenter movie. Uh, Chris, did you see this one? I did. Did you see it with me? I did not. I saw it like opening night as part of Grindhouse, and I enjoyed this way more than I should have. It sounds like you didn't. It's not quite only for Robbie's mommy, but of <laughs> of that double feature, I think Death Proof is definitely carrying the weight. I while while I'll agree, I have not talked to many people who who rather Death Proof than Planet Terror. They're all wrong. Are you sure you didn't mean Para Roberto's Madre? <laughs> sure man i don't sure God. sure um no it's it's fine it's just a little too it's you know what it is it's a little too asylum film for me it's a little too winky and a little too self-aware uh which really gets under my skin i i see what you're saying i'm not saying this is an all-time classic what i'm saying is this is a similar movie that you should you should see because it's a fun movie it it fits in a very similar slot i'm gonna say something that's probably gonna bother both of you I kind of thought Grindhouse was bad, and I'll tell you why. Overall, overall. What about the trailers? Uh, the tra- Well, okay. To that point, the trailers know what knew what Grindhouse was. Yeah. Planet Terror, as you said, was just a sci-fi movie, a sci-fi channel movie, and then Death Proof was just a Quentin Tarantino movie. For for the first, and I I will totally give you it's long in the beginning. It's long and slow in the beginning. No Grindhouse movie would have had that much masturbatory dialogue, yeah. dialogue up at the front. Unless it's Quentin Tarantino movie. But once they get on the road, it is immaculate. I it thought this was so a, good. Well, but but still, again, Quentin Tarantino movie is is the grindhousey part's perfect, but then he also has, like you said, the self-masturbatory sure, joke. Neither one, it's just neither one really got what they were setting out to do. Look, I'm not saying this is the, the greatest thing since sliced bread. I'm saying the fact that the grindhouse event where you could go and see two movies, double build, thematically similar, was really fun, and in about 15 years, we're going to look back and say, I wish we still could do things like that. I, I'm still waiting to see Thanksgiving. Yeah, exactly. Because wasn't that supposed to happen? No, I don't think so. I hope not. I don't like any of those that made it into real movies. I don't like you don't that didn't that didn't need to happen. While you're right, I would still watch Edgar Wright's Don't. Don't. Yeah, maybe, maybe. What 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 would you do? Would you give him like a a, a little meager budget like this and just say go at it? Yes. And if he asked, could he spend more money? I'd say don't. <laughs> Planet Terror is available to rent on Voodoo, iTunes, Amazon, wherever you can find movies. Um, I, I don't know about how to get the Grindhouse cut of it, and I've never seen the, the cut that's not in Grindhouse. Uh, but I think they add some add some stuff that wasn't in the original one. No, there was, I don't think, so what you're talking about, they, they released on DVD, like the extended where the reels that were missing are put back in, and it's just fluff. You don't need it. Yeah, um, there, There is a version. The version that I would recommend is the actual double feature version that has both on the same disc together with, I think, the trailers in the middle. And if you can get a time machine and go back to 2007 and watch it in theaters when we did on opening night, that's probably the best way to do it. So, Chris, what is your really rad recommendation? Uh, I've got something that I don't I don't think there's a, any real strong connections, uh, 
but it's uh, it's a movie that I was nevertheless thinking about quite a bit watching Prince of Darkness, and that is Guillermo del Toro's 1993 uh, Spanish language horror film Chronos. And this is the the thing that I think is probably the strongest connection is he is doing with sort of the vampire genre what Carpenter is trying to do a bit with the zombie genre in in saying like oh, okay here's the elements you know now let's put it in a different framework and so um this is an independent sort of vampire story in that um it's about this device uh I believe it's called the Chronos device that this alchemist back uh several hundred years ago made to make him immortal and he quietly discreetly lived on for years and years um with just using this device to give him immortality but it came at a cost it made him sort of frail and weak and he eventually died when i think a building collapses on him uh fast forward to uh years later and a i believe it's a a merchant or an antique dealer or a clockmaker, something like that, discovers it. And then he discovers that it makes him younger. And it's, you know, as as many horror movies like this go, it's like, oh, this is great. And then uh, things get darker. And that's when it really starts to kind of become this new take on a vampire story. Um, if you're not hooked there, it also stars a fairly young Ron Perlman, who's pretty good in it. And um, I think while uh, I think Guillermo del Toro has even said that he's a little ashamed of some of this, you know, it's an early film from him. And I don't think he was able to do everything everything he wanted to. I think it's pretty visually uh, masterful. Um, definitely, you know, it's not necessarily on the level of something like Pan's Labyrinth, um, but a, a really solid watch. You can you can find it right now on Filmstruck. Uh, there's a beautiful Criterion Blu-ray, or you can rent it basically anywhere else. And that's a wrap for another episode of The Carpenter Shop. We'll be back next month with a review of John Carpenter's cult classic starring Rowdy Roddy Piper, They Live. You can watch it right now on Stars, or pick up the limited edition Blu-ray Steelbook from Screen Factory. And don't forget, you can catch us in another fortnight on War Starts at Midnight, when we discuss Being There, directed by Hal Ashby and starring a very subtle Peter Sellers. You can find show notes, archives, and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at CarpenterCast.com. And check out our Mothership podcast at WarStartsAtMidnight.com. You can say hello to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, tell that cute person in the gym who's always listening to podcasts. Or rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at porkchopexpress at carpentercast.com. Or, if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The Carpenter Shop theme song and our featured music this week comes from Philip K. Dickey and Dragon in 3. Find more at dragonin3.com. Thanks for listening, folks. 